0: Father, we again thank you for the privilege of being able to study your word. And um, as we come to a book like Daniel, we uh, we really pray that you would help us, uh, give us understanding, uh, a lot of things that are, are difficult for us to understand, a lot of um, uh, things that are foreign to our way of communicating. And so we just pray that your Holy Spirit would help us and keep us from error and that uh, you would be glorified through our time together. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, so we're in the book of Daniel. So we we're in the again, and we're in the major prophets: um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Lamentations, the five major prophets, uh, prophetic books. Uh, Daniel is is a uh, a difficult book. Um, There are a lot of, or a few, very famous stories. If you grew up in in Christian circles and went to Sunday school, no doubt you would have heard uh, the stories of Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, uh, Meshach and Abednego. Uh, You would have heard the story of of the, the golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar built and Daniel and the Lions den all, all wonderful stories which we'll look at but then there's the second half of of the book that is is a lot more complicated and strange to our ears and it's a different genre it's called uh, apocalyptic apocalyptic uh literature and so when we get to that we'll we'll discuss it so let's Let's just again go through the book. It's a short book, just uh, 12 chapters. Um, uh, Chapter 1 to 6 is stories, and then 7 through 12 is visions and and their interpretations. So that's an easy breakdown of the book. Um, uh, Another strange thing about the book of Daniel is that it's written in two languages, or the way we have it is in two languages. Or the original—I uh, mean, the original that we have—and I'm not—I don't know what the original original was like. It—it uh, it is strange. Uh, chapter one, into the first few verses of chapter two is in Hebrew, and then from chapter two verse five into chapter seven is Aramaic, and then it goes back to Hebrew again. And there's several theories why that is but they're just theories the ones I've read nothing has stood out to make me say yes that that makes sense but just so you know that um, just another thing that adds to the complexity of of the book uh, that it's it's written in two different languages. Um, Okay so uh, chapter one verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So we're given the dates there, and uh, all the way through we are given dates. You can see in, in chapter 2, verse 1, in the second year in the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. And as you go along through the book, you'll see that um, whenever he has a vision, he'll say in the second year or third year or this year of so-and-so or this king or that king. Uh, But he does have a long, uh, he lives a long life, Daniel, uh, because uh, this this account of Nebuchadnezzar is in 605 BC. So it's only, uh, what, 27 years, uh, until the final destruction of, of, of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. There are uh, several exiles that take place. And, uh, the first one is in 605. And so Daniel is taken in this exile and, uh, You can see, as you carry on in chapter 1, verse 3, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So, uh, Daniel is a young man because we're told these are the young people that are taken, their nobility, the royalty, young men who um, are are good-looking, are skillful, are wise. Uh, They're going to take them and then bring them to Chal- Chalde- Chaldea, uh, to Babylon, and teach them there. So, Daniel is taken at a young age. I'm not sure exactly how old he is, but this is 605 B.C., we find that he is still prophesying in 538 B.C., so uh, some 67 years later, he's still working for the kings. Uh, So, you know, maybe if he was 15, uh, then he would sort of, what would he be, 82 years old. Uh, So he, he, he lives a long life, and he's Uh, involved in politics and ruling for a long time. So the first story we we come to is the food. So uh, they're taken to Babylon and they're given the king's food, wine and and meat, and they don't eat it. And so Daniel resolves, verse 8, that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. And so he eats... uh, but does he eat vegetables um, and water, okay? And so a lot of people have, a lot of ink has been spilt over why doesn't he eat the king's food and drink his wine. Um, uh, I think there's even a book written about, you know, Daniel's diet. So some people like to find obscure verses and and write whole books about it and You know, if you want a really healthy diet, then you should eat vegetables and drink water. Um, Really goes against what the rest of the Bible says about enjoying all the good things that God has given us to enjoy. And the Lord Jesus himself, uh, the food that he ate. So don't uh, don't take this to be sort of a teaching on diets. There's something else going on here. Verse 8 says he didn't want to defile himself. Uh, So that's a word of of, uh, ceremonial and moral uh, cleanliness. Uh, So probably what's going on here is that the king's food would have been unclean food. You remember the Jews had food that was unclean, like pork. They weren't allowed to eat pork and uh, horse meat, which we know the Babylonians ate horse meat and pork. Um, And also there was food offered to idols, Uh, which they were not to, not to eat. Okay. And so I think that's all there is to it. Uh, It's just that he, he wants to stay clean. And the book of Daniel is, remember Daniel is taken out of the promised land into a foreign land, into a pagan kingdom. And he is an example how to live in an ungodly environment. Uh, and you'll notice that he he still flourishes in that environment. And so it's a very important uh, book for us on a practical level because uh, we don't live in a Christian world or a Christian country. People like to talk about Christian countries, but there's no such thing. Um, the church or the people of God. There are no more Christian nations or Christian countries or chosen country or anything like that. Uh, the Church is the people of God, and they are chosen and so we we live in in ungodly and pagan cities, so we live in a city like Johannesburg with uh a lot of iniquity wickedness it 's a pagan environment uh, and so Daniel is an example of remaining pure and holy while still being um effectual and rising in power within a pagan society. So uh, that's one one thing that we need to learn. The other thing is that uh, back in verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. over and over again, you will see it's God who gives uh, power and sovereignty and majesty and wisdom. Uh, If you look at verse 17... As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And so all the way through, we'll see it's God who gives kings authority. It's God who raises up rulers and brings them down. It's God who gives wisdom. It's God who gives learning. It's God, it's God who protects. Uh, the sovereignty of God is is a huge theme in the book of Daniel. Uh, and so here they, they honor God. They remain uh, ceremonially and morally pure. They don't eat uh, unclean food or food offered to idols at that time. Uh, and God honors that. And so there's the same principle for us today, uh, the way that we should uh, remain pure in, in, in our work environments. Uh, we should be different to those around us. Remember in the old covenant, it was, it was external external difference. Your food that you ate was different. The way you dressed was different. Um, A whole lot of things were different, but they were external and the blessings were primarily external. So you would have uh, more crops and better health and things like that. Whereas in the new covenant, the focus is on the internal. Not that the, the internal wasn't important in the old, but for us, the focus is internal uh it's not that you have to wear a uniform to show that you're a christian if that's what you're relying on for people to know that you're a christian then you or a bumper sticker on your car uh then you're in trouble uh it's it's your character it's your holiness it's uh that you you don't compromise on truth uh you you're not corrupt you're not a liar you're not vulgar uh you're not a slanderer you're not a a deceitful person you're you're not um uh, uh, sexually immoral etc etc it's it's that you're a person who loves and is kind but it also stands for what is what is right uh, and there will be blessing as you obey God uh, blessing internal blessings of peace a clear conscience uh, knowing that you're right with God and of course um, uh, rewarding in glory but more often than not, there will also be uh, just blessings in life as well. Because, ordinarily, not always, just ordinarily, when you read the Book of Proverbs, God has created the universe with, in a certain with a certain grain in a certain direction, and things generally operate in this way. So, if you're a, a faithful, godly person, employee who works hard and is diligent and trustworthy. Uh, if you had a company, would you want to keep somebody like that on staff, or would you want to keep the ungodly person who's lazy and deceitful and unpunctual, etc., etc.? So if you, again, if you generally follow the godly principles generally, uh, it will also go better with you uh, on that level. But again, it's not a law because we also have the book of Job uh, and God's sovereignty and etc., etc., and the world hating us. Okay, so uh, God honors these guys and they get promoted. Uh, then in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he says, guys, he's, he he calls his wise men. He says, guys, please interpret it for me. And they say, no, no problem. Just tell us the dream and we'll interpret it for you. And he says, no, I'm not going to tell you the dream. You tell me the dream and give me the interpretation. And they say, "We nobody can do that. Uh, and so he, he says, okay, well, I'm going to kill all of you. Daniel finds out about it. He asks for mercy and for time. He goes and prays with his friends. And he comes back and he he says in verse 28 of chapter 2, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Again, we see the emphasis that it is God who reveals these things. Uh, Before that, in verse 20, Daniel prays to God, thanking God and asking God for, for wisdom. Uh, he goes to Nebuchadnezzar and describes the dream. He, he's had a dream of the statue with different layers made up of different materials, a head of gold, um, a chest of and arms of silver. This is verse 32 of chapter 2. Its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And so this iron and clay kingdom... And uh, he explains it to him and says, look, there's four kingdoms. And um, I'll just give you the answers. Uh, We know what the kingdoms are. um, Because he he tells him that the first kingdom is him. So the head of gold is the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar. The kingdom that comes after the Babylonian Empire is the Medo-Persian kingdom uh, under Cyrus. Uh, and uh, you would have, uh, you would have looked at Cyrus, I'm sure, when you looked at um, uh, Chronicles and Ezra. Uh, but that's the Medo-Persian Empire. We, we'll come to them in Daniel as well. Uh, then the third empire, the Bronze Empire, is uh, the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great, who was a Macedonian. Uh, that's the the Greek Empire, and then the last empire is the Roman Empire. Um, the empire of iron and clay, and so uh, Daniel predicts all these these empires uh, to to Nebuchadnezzar, and so Daniel is promoted, and um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar praises the God of Daniel, but uh, he's not converted. There's no true repentance because in chapter three. You see in verse one, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was sixty cubits and its breadth six cubits. Notice the repetition of six. If you um, uh, you'll know that six is the number of man, and in Revelation we have six, 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 and so here you can see Nebuchadnezzar trying to uh, trying to make himself God. He builds this massive statue made of gold. Um, and as you go through the the story, uh, everyone had to, when they heard the music, everyone had to bow down to the statue. Um, You'll see that there's a lot of repetition of the musical instruments and uh, the pomp and ceremony and the arrogance. And you know the story that uh, Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to bow down To Nebuchadnezzar, they're warned, if you don't bow down, you'll be thrown into the furnace. And uh, they respond in uh, verse 18, uh, verse 7, well, let's say verse 16. O Nebuchadnezzar, this is chapter 3, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand o king but if not be it known to you o king that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up so uh tremendous bravery uh, refusing to to bow down to to idols uh even at the risking of their own lives and you know the story Nebuchadnezzar is enraged, he heats the fire up seven times, so hot that when they bring them in to th- to throw them in the fire, the gods who bring them actually die from the heat. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fire, and then uh, Daniel—sorry, uh, Nebuchadnezzar sees somebody else in the fire. There's a fourth man, uh, and he says he's like a son of the gods. And so Um, I I certainly think that in some way that fourth man is a type of of Christ, the true son of God, um, who it might be Christ himself, a Christophany, an Old Testament appearance of Christ, or just a Christ-type figure like Michael the archangel or something like that. Um, But it's a symbolic picture of God delivering his people in in the midst of of persecution, and uh, the psalmist promises that even though when you go through deep waters, they won't harm you, and through fires they won't harm you, and he has a a, a graphic literal depiction of that. Uh, when they come out of the fire, their their hair isn't singed. There's not even a smell of smoke upon them, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar responds. Um, by praising God in chapter four, um, and so he he praises God, and so you have you know we have a lot of hope. If you're reading it for the first time, you think okay, Nebuchadnezzar's converted; he's really trusting God now. But he has another dream of a great tree that uh, is cut down and um, stripped uh, and uh, Um, this is chapter 4, verse 16, let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. Okay. And so there's this, um, uh, proclamation and Daniel interprets the dream. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, this tree, this massive tree is a picture of your kingdom. Uh, and, uh, it's where the, the birds of the field would find shade. And um, very interesting, remember the Lord Jesus tells the parable of the mustard seed. And he says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all the seeds, but it grows into a great tree that the birds of the field nest in the tree. Um, and uh, that's not true. The mustard seed doesn't grow into a tree. It grows into a, a big shrub. Um, so I think Jesus is, is not, it's not that Jesus doesn't know what happens to a mustard seed. He's saying the kingdom of God grows out of its kind, out of proportion to the tiny seed, how it began, but it does become a great tree. That's one of the reasons why heritage, our logo is it is a tree representing the kingdom of God and a place where the birds of the field find their home. And, uh, the birds of the field are symbolic of the nation's, uh, and so finding a place, refuge and safety and shelter in the kingdom of God for all peoples, all nations. Uh, here, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was like that. It was a great kingdom. And he's the greatest of all the kings, according to God, uh, apart from Christ, obviously. But in terms of earthly splendor, uh, a great, great kingdom. He's the golden head um, but he's going to be cut down and he's going to become like an animal in his in his mentality and behave like an animal and live like an animal for 7 years as a judgment okay so this is just a an aside i don't know how prevalent it is nowadays but when i was uh, growing up there was a movement called the toronto blessing and sort of this wild pentecostalism and it continued, and I, I know it continues in some places, but uh, the, the, the idea there, a lot of what would happen is that people would behave like animals and they would say the Spirit of God is moving. People would bark like dogs and uh, crawl around on all fours and slither like snakes and they would laugh uncontrollably and fall on their backs and they would say that this is a move of God's Spirit. And uh, um, it's an abomination, actually. Uh, Wherever God's spirit is at work, he works decently and in order. Um, The only time people fall over backwards is when they're being judged, like the people who came to arrest Jesus. And the only time people behave like animals is when they're being judged. Uh, And here we have it. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is being judged for his pride and is behaving like an animal. When the Spirit of God is at work properly, people become properly human uh, and righteous and ordered. And uh, there is a there is a glory and a beauty. Uh, it is uh, it is more and more like Christ. You never see Christ out of control. You never see Christ behaving like an idiot. Uh, you, you he is the ultimate human being. And uh, when the Spirit of God is at work. Uh, people behave uh, more and more like Christ. So that's just an aside. If you come from that background or if you maybe you're still in that to really think through that carefully. What does the Bible teach um, and not to go on your emotions or to say, but it was an amazing experience. Um, uh, but really, what is God's word saying? There's this, a terrible judgment on Nebuchadnezzar, but it's God's kindness to him. Um, it, it It is interesting that, that Daniel prophesies this is what's going to happen to you and he doesn't learn his lesson. Uh, he just continues in his pride and uh, one day he's walking on the roof of the royal palace. This is verse 29. Verse 30, And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power As a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven and the judgment begins. Why? Because he's taken the glory for himself. Look what I have done. Look what I have achieved. Um, As I said at the beginning, over and over again, it is God who raises kings up. It is God who gives wisdom. It's God who gives understanding and skill and ability. Uh, That's why... You know, when soccer players just go crazy when they score a goal as though they're the greatest and they stand in arrogance and punch their chest as though they've done it all, It's you know, they should really turn into animals uh, because it is God who has given them that skill and ability. Uh, it's the same for anything. I'm just using soccer players because we see it so often. Um, the arrogance of man to claim it for themselves when it is God who has given people, power, and ability, and that's a theme in, in the book of, of Daniel. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is restored, and he then says this amazing, one of the most incredible passages of Scripture. He, he realizes that God is sovereign. Um, this is really, really important. He says in verse 34, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. See, he's thinking clearly now. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Okay. Um, he finally gets it. Okay, And it's, unfortunately, a lot of Christians don't get this. That God is sovereign over absolutely everything. And no one can stay his hand. Uh, no one can say to him, what have you done? He does as he pleases. Uh, And he is sovereign over every, 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 every single thing, every movement of every electron, uh, the orbit of the planets, the steps of your life, the the days of your life, everything. He is sovereign over all things. And yet he does it in such a way that you are still responsible for, uh, for your behavior. Okay, now don't ask me how that comes together, uh, because I don't know. The Bible doesn't say in fact if when you when you if you were to ask uh, the apostle Paul how does that work he would say who do you think you are to question God okay so it's in Romans chapter 9 uh, but it's just a fact God is sovereign over all things and that's a comfort um because if he's not sovereign and he's not in control then we're just wasting our time and there is no security and there is no hope um but but he is sovereign And then we jump ahead to King Belshazzar in chapter 5. King Belshazzar uh, was not supposed to be the king. Nabonidus was the king, but Nabonidus had started to worship a foreign god. And so he was sort of pushed to the side, and Belshazzar took his place. And um, he doesn't learn a lesson from his successor, Nebuchadnezzar, and his example. Daniel actually says that to him. You never never learn from your father. from Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, He's in the middle of a battle with with, uh, Darius. Uh, This is the Medo-Persian Empire that's on the rise now, and they've besieged Babylon. Belshazzar decides to throw a party, and again, when you read the story, you will notice the word gold is repeated over and over again. He goes and takes the golden vessels that were taken from the Jerusalem temple, and remember they were holy to God. They were not for profane use, and he takes them and he uses them as cups just to get drunk on. And while he's there, uh there's this writing on, on the wall, a hand appears and just writes on the wall, and uh it says um verse twenty five of chapter five Mine, Mine, Tickle and Parson. And uh Daniel gives the interpretation. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tikal, you have been want, weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And uh, and so Daniel again interprets what's happened. You've been weighed and found wanting. You haven't listened. You haven't learned from your your successor, Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Okay. Um, And so now there's a new empire in charge in Babylon. But Daniel continues to be, to serve in this new kingdom. Okay, so an example for us, Daniel's an example of a godly person involved in politics, uh, involved in the civil sphere, continues to be faithful to God. He is obviously diligent, he is honorable, um, and, and um, he has tremendous influence. So chapter 6, there's the shift, it's uh, Darius who's now in charge. Uh there is a lot of discussion over Darius, Darius the Mede, and then there's Cyrus the Persian. I th- I think that they're the same person. Uh I think that the one is just the person's Mede name and the other one's their Persian name. Um, if you if you jump down to chapter uh, verse 28 of chapter 6 in the, in the ESV, it says, So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So there it sounds like it's two people, two different reigns. Although historically, we don't have any record of Darius. And uh, it also sounds like Darius is the guy who's, who's doing all the things that Cyrus does in, in Chronicles. Uh, that word and can be translated as that is. So you could read it as, so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, that is, the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Okay, But again, it's not a hill to die on. Who knows, tomorrow archaeologists might discover some plaque somewhere that tells us about Darius at this time, and maybe he just ruled for a short period. Um, so it's not a hill to die on, but there's a strong argument that it is the same pers- person, it's just that They would have thrown names, and uh, because it's the joining of two groups, he had a a Median name and a a Persian name. Um, Okay, so uh, Darius is in charge, and um, uh, Daniel in verse 3 is distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps, satraps, were were provincial leaders, they called them a satrapy, okay, in the Persian empire, they had satrapies, They were provinces, but they just called them satrapies, and a satrap was a person in charge of that. Okay, the other guys didn't like Daniel, and so they wanted to know how to get rid of him, and you know the story, they come to Darius, and they say, you know, let's make a, you, you need to make a covenant that for 30 days no one can can pray except to you, and he, he, he sort of uh, agrees to this and daniel hears about it but he does not stop praying to, to the lord uh, he continues to to trust god and rather to obey god than than man um so he he prays they catch him and uh, darius is grieved because he he really likes Daniel because he's a good guy and he's faithful and he does a good job and uh, he tries to, to get out of it but he can't because there's the law of the Medes and the Persians that what is what once it's written you can't go back on it. And so Daniel is thrown into the lion's den but you know the story that they, uh, the Lord closes the lion's mouths and uh, he's preserved and the people who instigated this this whole thing are then thrown into the lion's den with their families. And the Bible says, you know, before their bodies hit the ground, the lions had already broken their bones. Okay. And so the law of retaliation, lex talionis, that you always get uh, what you wanted to do to others. Okay. Okay. That brings us to the end of the stories section. Um Uh, Just at the end there, again, Darius then writes a poem praising God, that God is sovereign. So you see this theme over and over again. God is sovereign over everything. Uh, Then we come to chapter 7, and now it's apocalyptic literature. And uh, the other well-known book for apocalyptic literature is the book of Revelation, and uh, Ezekiel also has it as well. And those Images are picked up again then in the book of Revelation. Okay, so apocalyptic literature is is uh, quite difficult. Um, but often the interpretations are given. And in actual fact, there are angels who give interpretations here. In Revelation, are, are the keys are given. So once you begin to understand like a horn represents a kingdom, then when you see horns... You, you 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 get the idea. Plurality will mean strength, uh um and numbers have different meanings like ten and seven and things like that. And so the more you study it the more you will start to see the the different keys. Um we go back to Belshazzar and um uh he has a a uh, uh during the reign of Belshazzar Daniel has a dream and visions, and um, he sees these four great beasts in chapter 7, verse 4, and there's descriptions of them, Um, a lion with eagle's wings, and um, another beast like a bear, and a leopard, and then a, a very, very strange one for the fourth beast, uh, again, these four beasts represent the four kingdoms that we saw, we we spoke about already in in uh, the vision of the statue. So this is just another description of of these four kingdoms, and certainly the animals and the way they're described uh, have different aspects regarding the characteristics of these kingdoms. So again, the first kingdom is the Babylonian kingdom, the second the Medo Persian, the third the Greek kingdom. And then the fourth, the, the Roman Kingdom, but these kingdoms are judged uh, because in verse nine, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancient, ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames; its wheels were burning fire. So the throne of God. I'm sure when you did Ezekiel, uh, the the fiery wheels, the the this portable or movable or dynamic throne of God. Um, And it's majestic. And then verse 13, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. So you have the ancient of days who is clearly God. And then you have another person, the son of man, who also comes on the clouds and coming on the clouds is a phrase that's reserved for God. And yet the Son of Man comes on the clouds to the Ancient of Days. And he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. This is verse 14 of chapter 7. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Okay. And so, of course, we know this side of the cross, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, who is different to the ancient of days. He's not God the Father, but he is still God. But he's also the Son of Man. Uh, He takes upon himself humanity. And remember that this is Jesus' favorite title for himself. Over and over again, he refers to himself as the Son of Man, the Son of Man the son of man taken from daniel chapter 7 uh, a messianic but also a divine title so it sounds strange we think son of man oh that that's referring to his humanity but it's also referring to his deity from uh daniel chapter 7 because the son of man is on the clouds and is given uh, by god the father all the nations Okay, and so of course we see that in the new covenant, uh, right at Pentecost, people from all different nations are converted, and the gospel explodes into the world. Uh, it's not limited to to the land of Canaan. There is this wonderful explosion. All the nations. Um, Daniel sees this, but he is still p- shocked about the fourth beast. He wants to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different, this is verse 19, from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet and about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell and the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. Okay, and so... um, The description is then given in verse 23. As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and he shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Okay, and so uh, this is where it gets uh, interesting. We start talking about numbers in, in the book of, of Daniel, and then we see this in, in uh, Revelation Uh, But then it goes on to say, but he will be judged and his kingdom will be taken away. And his kingdom, uh, verse 27, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Now, remember in verse 14, who's given dominion? Who's given the kingdoms? It's Jesus. Here, it's the saints who are given the kingdoms. Uh, It's a beautiful picture. What is given to Christ is also given to his people. Uh, We are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. We will rule and reign with him, and already we are ruling and reigning with him. Uh, Every time you fight sin, every time you lead someone to Christ, every time you disciple someone to more Christ-likeness, you are ruling and reigning over uh, principalities and powers and Uh, sin and death uh, in that way. Uh, But of course, there's a consummate fulfillment of that. Okay, so this fourth kingdom is the Roman kingdom. And uh, I would argue that uh, when you read Revelation and with Daniel, that this fourth kingdom, we know that God's kingdom comes. It is this rock that is hewn out without hands and it comes. And we know that that came with the coming of Jesus Christ, but we also know that it's not as though the whole world is Christian and everyone loves Jesus. That's not the reality. There are some people who say that is what will happen eventually. Uh, I don't see that that, that tenor uh, in Scripture. Uh, I don't see Paul, you know, super optimistic about this world and the way it's going, and I don't see Jesus parables optimistic either he says the wheat and the tares grow up together uh, so I don't see that vision uh, being interpreted that way uh, so I would argue the Roman kingdom still continues this fourth kingdom still continues so maybe you're thinking that's crazy you know we learn about the Roman empire and history and that fell to the barbarians and in, in what was it uh th- three something three ten I think something like that uh, it doesn't exist anymore. Italy isn't a great empire anymore. Um, yeah, they won Euro twenty twenty, but uh, uh, it doesn't mean they're a great empire. Um, uh, but if you think about it, um, the 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 influence of Roman law on the world. So if any of you are studying law, you will still learn Roman law. Um, It is still the operating system, if I can put it that way, uh, for the majority of the world when it comes to legal things. Uh, There are many, many things from the Roman Empire that still continue to this day. Um, So I, I... uh, you' you'll, we'll probably do it more in Revelation. I have more time there or I, I go into it in more detail. But I would just argue and something for you to think about that this fourth kingdom is still continues to this day. And that's why it is so amazing. And so why Daniel can still be obsessed about this fourth kingdom. Even John is amazed at what goes on uh, because this influence is still continues uh, all the way through. I do believe that this horn that that grows up and then destroys the others is is a type is a picture of the Antichrist. Uh, and and we'll see more of that just now. Uh, in chapter eight, oh so there's this this notice the mention in verse 25, time times and half a time. So time one times two, that's three and then half. So three and a half years, or time times and half a time Uh, That amount, that period of time is mentioned in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 5 and 12. Uh, Time, times and half a time. So a period of three and a half years, which we'll look at just now. So just keep that in your back pocket. Uh, Chapter 8, Daniel has another vision, uh, also during the reign of Belshazzar. And um, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this because... This is really talking about uh, he sees two animals, a, a a ram and a male goat, and the male goat smashes the ram, and the the male goat <clears throat> does it swiftly uh, and remember the third kingdom was a uh, likened to a leopard, so swift, and that speaks of. The, the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great conquered, uh, you know, he conquered the whole of Greece, the whole of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey going on, continuing down, uh, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, down to Egypt. He conquered Egypt. He then continued, conquered the Persian Empire. He continued all the way to India before he was 30 years old, incredibly swift. Uh, that's why it's likened to a leopard and this, this male goat that swiftly takes out the Medo-Persian empire. But it doesn't last long. Uh, we don't have time. I don't have time to show you where, where, all of the, the imagery. It doesn't last long. And then there's four horns, which is exactly what happened. And none of them were Alexander's children. The kingdom is divided amongst four people. The north, the south, the east, the west. The ones that are important for us are the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. The Northern Kingdom is the Seleucid Kingdom, and the Southern Kingdom is the Ptolemaic Kingdom. Uh, The Seleucids end up controlling Israel, and there is a man later on called Antiochus Epiphanes during the intertestamental period, the period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Those 400 years that are quiet, uh, the, the, um, this, this Antiochus Epiphanes uh, tries to Hellenize, which is to, to introduce Greek culture to Israel. And he even goes into the temple and sacrifices to false gods, to, to Greek gods, and he, sac- he slaughters a, a pig. Uh, And that's the abomination of desolation that Daniel speaks of. It's this incredible abomination. And that leads to this war. And the the, the figures are are prophesied here and what will happen. And it's very precise and wonderful. Um, But as I said, we don't have time to go into that. Uh, In chapter 9, Daniel is praying and he says, Look, I was reading the prophet Jeremiah. So this is quite interesting. Can you imagine Daniel reading the Bible, and he's reading Jeremiah. It's a prophet reading another, another prophet. He reads the book of Jeremiah, and he sees that 70 years are prophesied for God's people. So this this exile of 70 years. And he keeps reading, and he prays, and he asks God to have mercy on, on Israel and to forgive them for their sins. And then um, we come to... Um, a an angel appears to to uh, to Daniel and says, "Look at look at verse twenty four. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people." Okay. Um. In chapter nine, uh, in the it says verse one in the first year of Darius. So the first year of Darius, there, there there's, there's Cyrus's decree; they can start to go back. Um, but he, he realizes things are not right. So the angel says, look, 70 weeks, which is um, 70 times 7. okay? So not just 70, it's 7 times 70, which is also what God prophesied in the Old Testament. I will repay you 7 times. So it's not just 70 years, it's 7 times 70. 70. 490 years are decreed about your people, this is verse 24, and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet and to anoint a most holy place. Okay. So to me, that sounds like the end of the world. Seventy weeks are decreed to do all of these things, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to atone for sin, to put an end to sin. Seventy weeks are decreed. So the angel is giving the timetable. Uh, In this, this 70 weeks, all of these things must be accomplished. Okay. So now this is where it gets... Uh, technical. Uh, Know therefore and understand, verse 25, that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Okay, so uh, from the time the decree goes out to rebuild to the coming of a prince, there will be seven weeks, so uh, seven times seven, 49 years. Uh, And Let me just get it in front of me. Uh, Now, it depends which decree you take. There were several decrees. Um, uh, But if we take Ezra's decree, uh, then um, we take the seven times seven. And if you carry on reading... Uh, 62 weeks, then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off. So 62 plus seven, so 69 of the 70 weeks. Okay, so if we take it from Ezra's decree, uh, which was 457 BC, and uh, we have 69 times 7, so, so uh, 7 less than 490 years we have 483 years okay I'm sure Kai will send you a a graphic or something for the for this uh, I hope I haven't lost everyone um uh, 483 years after the decree of Cyrus we arrive at AD 27 AD 27 Um, which is, uh, most historians believe Jesus is crucified in AD 30. Uh, So I'm sure you've heard that phrase, Jesus' ministry is about three years. Okay, so now just keep that, again, keep that in mind. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end shall, there shall be war, desolations, are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Okay, now, to show you how complicated this can get is that some people think this is the Antichrist. This person who makes a covenant. Uh, I believe it's the Lord Jesus Christ uh, because it talks about the anointed one being cut off and making a covenant which puts an end to sacrifice and offering. Now, Jesus' crucifixion is the last sacrifice. It doesn't matter what animals you kill afterwards, it doesn't matter how many animals they killed in the temple or if they rebuild the temple and start killing animals, it's meaningless. Jesus Christ is the last sacrifice. Uh, He is the the final sacrifice. Um, uh, The writer of Hebrews says that. Uh, So the end of of offerings, the end of sacrifices comes with the crucifixion. The crucifixion is um, the final sacrifice. So in the middle of this last week, There is, the anointed one is cut off. Cut off means dies. And it's the end of sacrifices and offerings. And we know Jesus' ministry is, well, at least three years. This would be, make it three and a half years. So that leaves us with a period of three and a half years that are left. Okay, so remember the timeline. This is the timeline for everything to be finished. Uh, We've seen that, it, it brings us up to the crucifixion of Christ and we're left with a three and a half year period uh that three and a half year period is also in um in revelation uh referred to in days uh, one thousand two hundred and sixty days um and and uh don't have time to go into it more than that uh, but this is what I believe has happened. Okay, so in revelation uh this whole period between Christ's first coming and or his crucifixion and his second coming is referred to in terms of three and a half years, so that last three and a half years is not a literal three and a half years it is now a a um a uh, symbol or a metaphor for the this whole period that we are living in now. Okay. And so, uh, that's the period that we are, uh, we are living in. Okay. Um, there's more than that happens with, uh, in chapter 11, but again, that has to do with, with, um, that intertestamental period, very specific prophecies are, are given. Um, Okay. Um, I see our time is is uh, is running out. Um, so turn to chapter twelve, just quickly. So chapter 12, then verse 5, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of all these wonders? So when is everything going to come to an end? When is the end of the world? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, And swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, three and a half years. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Okay, that's three and a half years, just in a different metric. Okay, so basically saying the time the offerings end, Christ's crucifixion, to the end, will be 1,290 days. Now, obviously, there's been more than 1,290 days since Jesus' crucifixion. And so that's why I'm arguing it's not literal. It's figurative. It's symbolic. There is a shift. And you can see this in the book of Revelation. But then he says in verse 12, Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. Okay, so what's going on here? We're told it's three and a half years, 1,290 days. Um, Sometimes it's referred to as 1,260 days, depending on uh, whether you use a lunar calendar or a solar calendar. It's uh, three and a half years. But now there's a figure of 1,335, and it's as though God is simply saying, uh, and you see this in the parables, his return is longer than, it, it takes longer than one thinks. Do you remember the parable of the virgins with the oil? And they fell asleep. Uh, that idea that there's this time allotted, but it's it's going to go on longer than you think. Make sure that you're ready. Don't give up. Persevere to the, to the end. Uh, during this time, the wicked will be wicked, uh, but the righteous will be righteous and they'll purify themselves. They will remain faithful to the Lord. Uh, they won't deny the Lord. Um, verse 13, but go your way till the end and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Um, And so Daniel, don't worry, you'll be fine. Uh, Daniel's lived a long faithful life and he will will be in glory and we'll see him uh, one day. Um, Okay, so I know that's a real rush through it and there's a lot of uh, Uh, things with numbers there and I understand if anyone has to leave we're over time I won't be offended but uh, anyone have any questions in the meantime okay everyone happy um or I totally confused everyone. Uh, it is confusing, I must say. Uh, um, uh, but uh, I've I, I wrestled with this these passages for a long time, and I think this is the, the model that explains things the best and fits with the book of Revelation uh, the best. Um, okay. Well, if you do have any quick if I can just ask one question. Yes, you here. can. Yes. Um so do you think just out of curiosity so the magi UEC, see in Luke do you think they may have been affiliated with Daniel? In anyway. Uh yeah, good question. Uh well, well not I mean they were way later. Daniel is uh 5 600 years before Jesus. Uh but I definitely think that so, so we know that many Jews stayed in in uh, Babylon and in Persia. Uh, Esther stayed. I mean, Esther is later on. Esther is after Daniel. So, uh, remember that they were wanting to kill all the Jews in the empire, and there were still Jews in uh, Susa, uh, which was the capital. Uh, so yeah Judaism stayed and uh, would have impacted people and so definitely I do believe that um, you know the magi were uh, had some some understanding um, of of the scriptures of of the things of God and it would have been from from the exile period and and from the Jews who were taken into exile and those that remained and the scriptures remaining in in those areas, yeah. Okay, thank you. I have a question. So, I mean, when you read like stuff like this, I guess if I can boil down the question, it would be how relevant is it for a Christian? Because I think, you know, speaking to many people's cases, you know, we haven't read uh, this kind of material, you don't really understand it, but it doesn't really "quote unquote" impact your life. So, what we can like learn from it or take away from it as a believer now? Yeah. So. Yeah, good question. You know, what's the takeaway or so what? Uh, Uh. Um. Uh. So I think on the one level, it is remarkable to see the accuracy of Daniel's predictions. Um as we saw with Isaiah, Isaiah prophesying Cyrus by name, uh, what, 300 300 years before it occurs. Uh, Daniel prophesying all these kingdoms and the characteristics of these kingdoms. Um, And and I say we didn't have time to look at it. The reason we didn't look at it, because because it's even less relevant at one level, is the whole intertestamental period. Um, But when you go into that, into the detail of that, it's very specific, uh, incredibly specific. So on a apologetic level, on a, you know, just God prophesying, predicting things in minute detail and with tremendous, with 100% accuracy, you know, it's, it's, it strengthens one's faith. And maybe if you're not a Christian, it, it should hopefully make you, um, uh, you know, sit up and take notice uh God's God's word is is true. So that's one takeaway. Uh the other is the takeaway so you're obviously talking about the apocalyptic side. On the example side, Daniel is an example uh, you know, of Christ. He is a righteous man and um an example for us and especially how we live and how we conduct ourselves in a pagan society and how we can be involved. You know, a lot of Christians want to just are uh, the you know uh no one else is saved at in my workplace i'm gonna leave the job there and and maybe there's times that that's that that is wisdom but you know god god's grace is sufficient and and um we should be salt and light wherever God calls us and uh daniel was in in you know in a pagan environment and yet he 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 was faithful God honored that he rose up the ranks. And uh, he, was, he was very influential, very much like Joseph as well. So I think an example for us. On the apocalyptic side, I think what it tells us is that um, uh, we are part of something big. So, so I like the phrase apocalyptic Christianity. Apocalypse simply means unveiling or removing of the veil. So the Re- book of Revelation is a revealing that you can see what's going on in the spiritual realm and here we see that there's beasts and uh, these dramatic images that are used often we can just sort of feel our you know one's life is so just mundane and ordinary you know you you wake up brush your teeth make your sandwiches go to school go to work uh sit in class do a few things go back home the same way have some food you know watch a youtube video go to bed uh and 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 it can just seem small our, our lives and it's not like that at all as god's people we are part of something cosmic and massive and behind the scenes there are principalities and powers and your your fight is um is to just to say no to sin is, has massive repercussions and when you just testify or do something faithfully it's god sees it and principalities and powers see it and um, you know, it's just, it expands one's understanding that we're part of a great adventure. Uh, that's why we love, you know, these massive fantasy uh, stories, because it's a great adventure. And sometimes our lives can feel, you know, we're not, you know, we're stuck stuck at home during COVID lockdown. But then we're missing the big picture that just continuing to trust God is is an adventure. You're part of something massive. There is Satan out to destroy you and the demons. And uh, I'm not talking about a demon behind every rock or something. I'm saying there's, the Bible just shows there is this cosmic warfare. There are fiery darts. Uh, And so when you remember that, we're part of a great adventure. Uh, We're part of the greatest story ever told. We're, We're so loved. It's the greatest love story, the greatest battle, all of these things. And so I think apocalyptic literature helps us. Um, and it paints the enemies in, in vivid terms, that our enemies are real and they're powerful and they're monstrous and you won't defeat them. We need, we need a great prince. We need a savior. We need a mighty warrior. And Jesus is that one who delivers us. So I, I like it from that perspective. Uh, it is noteworthy, apocalyptic literature is given it's not ordinarily given so a lot of the prophets don't use it at all but it is given whenever god's people are under severe pressure the prophets then use apocalyptic literature so daniel is when god's people are going to be uh, when sorry when god's people are in exile in a foreign land they're oppressed uh Revelation is when the church is being persecuted by the Roman Empire and by the by uh Judaism. Uh, John is is himself in exile on the island of Patmos. It's in those periods of intense persecution and suffering that God uses these this imagery. So uh, when you're facing trial and in difficulty, then it, it, it is wonderful to see, wait a minute, I'm part of something massive and I have a great king. Because all apocalyptic literature ends with God winning. God wins. He defeats the enemies. Jesus Christ wins. Uh, and so it, it's to encourage us to persevere. Nothing can, can destroy God's people. It doesn't matter what is thrown at us. If you're a child of God, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even your faith. Uh, And so I think that's the, the the takeaway for this type of literature. Any other questions? Okay, let me let me pray for for us. Thank you for for staying on for that. Let's pray. Oh Father, thank you so much for a time in Your Word. Thank you for the Book of Daniel. Thank you for the example of Daniel and how He points us to You, Lord Jesus. His faithfulness, His obedience to Your law, His integrity, His honor, uh, and how You kept Him, how You kept His friends as well. And um, Lord, we pray that You would help us to be like that. We we too live in a pagan environment, in a difficult environment. Uh, maybe none of none of the uh, no classmates or believers no work colleagues are saved even no family members are saved and yet you don't call us to run away and to live on top of a mountain you call us to be salt and light to be in the world but not of the world and so please help us to be faithful to you and thank you that you are in control Lord Jesus of all things that we can trust you even in the midst of of uncertainty, and difficulties, and and, uh, pandemics, and economic uncertainty, and violence, and uh, so many things, Lord, you are in absolute control, you have not lost control, and you're working all things for the good of your people, and so uh, please comfort us by your spirit, keep us all safe tonight, give us rest, so that we can have strength to serve you tomorrow, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Hope you have a a good night and Lord bless. Thanks, Pastor Mike, and good night. Thank Thank you. you.